Hey, Generation Church, we welcome you and invite you to encounter Jesus with us. We believe that through him, we will encounter love and discover our purpose. So take a seat, lean in, and let this message fortify your faith. I'm excited about tonight because it's just, it feels like it's just going to another level. And so um, also, if you weren't here this morning, I want you to have an opportunity to give and just sow into Mike and, and just... I just want to bless them. I mean, I am so touched inside deeply by the word that that they're carrying. And, you know, this isn't just a good teaching. This isn't just a good sermon you're getting ready to hear. This is a revelatory word that is meant to transform you from the inside out. It's to go into your spirit. It's kind of like bypass this thing and get into your heart. And so um, I'm just very encouraged about tonight. And also, too, I want to let you guys know that um, their books are available in the back. And this, what he's going to be sharing from is from this book, The Life of Christ in the Heart of Man. I'm devouring this book. So I want to highly encourage you to get this book. Also, there's another book. I didn't have that one up here. It's called Sound Access to the supernatural, which that sounds great. So that's my next one. But this one is outstanding. And, um, and Patty told me, she says, we don't have any prices on the books. So basically, give what you can. And, um, and at the end of tonight, Patty will be back there. And, and we'll, I want you just to really let this sink into your heart. And if you can't... Um, you know, give anything you let me know, because I want you to have one. So um, make sure you guys take advantage of these books. And so um, I think that's it. Uh, do they have CDs of music? CDs of music? Yeah. Well, I think Mike sings pretty well. You got a good voice. <laughs> you know, we ought to record it. I'm like, he seems pretty good, you know. Um, no, I don't think... Um, they have a CD on music. Huh? Yeah, that's another mic. Yeah. So, well, but to answer your question, no, they don't. But um, OK, I would like you all just to give Mr. Mike Atkins a warm welcome. So would you all just give him a, a good clap and let's welcome him. Yeah. so much. Wow. How many, who is here that was not here this morning? Anybody raise your hand if you weren't here this morning? Okay, great. We'll, we'll do a complete review. No, I'm kidding. We'll. Um, but hopefully somewhere, sometime, someplace you can catch up on some of that. But maybe just for the rest of us, just a really quick short reminder. We basically, in the simplest terms this morning, talked about two paradigms of Christianity. Paradigm number one is in simple terms, Jesus died for me, and now it's my turn to live for him, okay? He did his part, now it's my part. Problem with that, we're going to discuss all the rest of this evening. The second paradigm, which is the biblical paradigm, is that Jesus died for me so that he could live through me. Not me live for him, but him live through me. And at first glance, it feels like that's just semantics, but it, it, nothing could be further from the truth. 
It is at the very center core of Christianity. And I have to tell you, my, my earnest belief as a pastor, traveling around the country and going different places, is that such a huge percentage of believers are operating their entire Christianity out of this first paradigm that Jesus died for me, he did his part, now it's up to me to do my part, which is to live for him, to expend all of my energy, all my strength, everything I can do to live my life for Jesus. When in fact, Jesus has made no provision whatsoever for you to live your life for him. He's made no provision for that. If you're going to do that, you're on your own. (laughs) And he'll let you do that on your own for as long as as you feel like you want to go that route. The only provision he has made is for him to live his life through you. That's the only provision he's made. And so learning how quickly we can get to that place is critical. And I'll show you just a simple, simple illustration, simple illustration. But I want you to look at this. This is an apple, but it's a piece of fruit. I want you to just imagine that I were to give you a, um, a challenge. And my challenge is I want you to replicate this apple. So I want you to replicate this apple, uh, and I give you a condition. The condition is that this apple, you cannot rely upon anything within the apple to replicate it. But I want you to replicate this. In fact, that's not that hard a thing to do. And the condition really doesn't limit me in any way. Because to replicate means to make a copy of. It means to make a replica of, okay? So I don't really need the apple's help to do that. All I really need to do is decide to what extent I want to make a replica. So for example, I could say, I'm just gonna go over, put it on the Xerox machine, run it off, black and white copy, got a replica, okay? I have replicated it. Or I could say, you know what, I'm gonna spend a couple extra dollars, I'm gonna get a color copy. Or I could decide that I'm gonna go further than that, I'm actually gonna take a photograph of it, full color photograph. Or I say, you know what, I'm going to go even further than that. I'm going to put it into a computer and make a 3D rendering of it so you can turn it around, upside down, inside out. I'm going to, make a, I'm going to spend a little, more, a little more time, put more energy into it. Or I decide, you know what, I'm actually going to model this out in clay. Or I'm going to ma- model it out in clay and then I'm going to paint it. Or, you know, like my grandmother, I'm going to make a piece of wax fruit that you put it right next to this. You know, wax fruit. Did anybody know what? Uh, some of you, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, okay? But I can just tell you, dust your wax fruit every once in a while, amen? <laughs> That's just a little homemade piece of advice. And I can look at that and I can say, look, I made a replica. So here's the thing for me to make a replica of this requires no real assistance from the apple itself. All it means, all that is necessary is for me to decide how much energy, effort, time, space, passion, devotion, I want to put into the replication process. But if I were to give you a second challenge, and this time my challenge is not to replicate this piece of fruit, but I want you to reproduce it. Okay? And I leave the same condition on you. You can't use anything in the apple to reproduce it. Now, I've given you an impossible task. Because to reproduce means to produce again. You see, the problem is, if I want to reproduce this, I'm entirely dependent upon the apple to do that. I can't even make a contribution to that. All that I can do is create an environment for what's in this apple to be released, to go through the necessary process that will eventually result in another apple. 
but I really have no control over that. I don't know how to do it. I can't make it happen. I have no contribution to make except to position this thing in a place where its internal, inherent capacity and ability can be released. You know, the thing is, though, that what we're trying to do and what we've been taught to do and what millions of Christians are trying to do is they're trying to replicate the life of Christ. And to replicate the life of Christ doesn't really need much of Jesus' help. You're kind of on your own. And some people say, well, you know, I'm just going to show up on Sunday, do a black and white copy, you know. People look at it, it looks kind of like an apple. Yeah, it's okay. He looks sort of like the way Jesus might kind of sort of occasionally be. Somebody else says, no, I'm getting, I'm going on, I'm going all the way. I'm going color copy, man. Somebody <laughs> says, somebody says, well, I'm going to go Bible college and I'm doing 3D, 3D. You got 3D, man. I got your 3D. I'm going to the mission field and I'm going, I'm going, man, I'm going all, you know what I'm saying? And then what we do is we're teaching people. We find, we meet people, Christians that are black and white copies. And what do we do? We say, we just want you to move up to color. And if you'll come to this Bible study, you'll go to this small group, we're just going to move you on up to color, you know. We get you to color, hey, you know what, I see something in you. I think you could maybe be a 3D copy. I really do. I want, I, and I want to call you to that. I want to call you up to that, brother. And so really, replication is all about, replication is 100% about the extent to which I'm devoted because the ha- apple's not involved. The apple is not involved at all. I'm telling you with a heart, that's so burdened for the body of Christ globally that this is exactly what discipleship has been in the church. We're teaching people how to replicate. We're teaching people, okay, here's the life of Jesus, and what you need to do is ask yourself, what would Jesus do, and then go do that. Act like Jesus. That's your calling. You know, when I was a young believer, one of my favorite words in, in the human language was the word Christ-like. I loved that word because that was, that was my aspiration. Jesus died for me. I'm going to live my life for him. How do I do that? Well, there's the way. Here's the truth. Go live the life. So what does that mean? I want to be Christ-like. And I loved that word. I wanted to be Christ-like. I want to be Christ-like. But, you know, now I don't, I don't really care much for that word except in another context that I may not get to share with you tonight but because I discovered there's another word very similar to it it's the word lifelike when you say something's lifelike what you're saying in essence is it's not alive it just looks like it is and when you say something is Christ-like you're not saying this is Jesus that we're seeing you're saying this is something that looks like him it's a replication and we're teaching people to look at how Jesus lived his life and live your life the way he lived his life. Now, you know, we talk about being under the law, you know, the law, the Ten Commandments. And we learn the law, man, the law, what's the purpose of the law? The law was never meant to be a pathway to life. It was always meant to be a revelation of death. The law was not given to you to be a pathway to life. The law was given to you to reveal that there's a thing called death, spiritual death inside of you. The whole purpose of the law, the Bible says, is to shut everybody's mouth and hold us absolutely silent before a holy God, incapable of, of, of trying to produce evidence that we are good enough for God in our own strength and ability through our own righteousness. The law was never given to you to be a pathway to life. The law can never lead you to life. The Bible actually says if there was a law that could lead to life, then righteousness would have come by the law. 
The law does not lead you to life. The law was never meant to lead you to life. What the law was meant to do was to take a man who had fallen, who had spiritually died, who was without hope and without God in the world, and to draw a circle around him in his self-sufficiency and independence and thinking that he could make himself righteous and do good without God's help, without the life of Christ in him, and he could do all this. And so God said, okay, well, let me just put a circle around you and tell you, stay in that circle. And immediately, before, before the, the ink was dry on the page, so to speak, man was outside the circle. Why? Because God was trying to show him there is a problem with you. The problem's not with the law. The law is pure and holy and just and righteous and true and perfect. The problem's not with the law. The problem's with you. That's why I put the law in front of you to show you there's a problem with you. You can't do this. And so the law was never meant to be a revelation or a pathway to life for us. That's why when Jesus came, the Bible says in him was life. Zoe, the Greek word zoe means the life that God himself has. It's a life that is not, it's not obtainable anywhere other than from him. There's bios, that's the Greek word for biology that we get biology from. There's suke, that means a lifestyle. When Jesus said, I am come that you might have life, he didn't say I've come to give you biological life, you had it. He didn't say I've come to give you suke, which means a, 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 a mental life, an emotional life. You already had that. He said, I'm come that you might have zoe. This is a life you don't have right now. You've never had it. And this is the life that I've come to give you. Jesus, by the way, did not say, he did not say, I have come that you might have an abundant life. He didn't say that. What Jesus said is, I'm come that you might have life in abundance. Now, I'll tell you that having his life in you in abundance will lead to an abundant life because you'll have wisdom and insight and expectation and understanding that you never had before. But Jesus' goal was not to give you an abundant life. That's America. Jesus' goal was to give you his life in abundance. That's what he said. Throughout Scripture, Jesus constantly talks about life. I'm here for life. I'm coming to give you living water. I'm coming to give you living bread. I am the bread of life that came from heaven. I've come to give you life. This is a life that human beings don't possess. They got physical life, they got mental life, they got emotional life, they got volitional life, they got passionate life, they've got all of these other things, biological life, but they do not have this life. They don't have this life. And without this life in you, this thing that is supposed to be showing up in you is never going to be found. It's only when his life gets in you, the dust, and this gets planted in the dust of your humanity, that's when this life starts to be released. And then it can begin to be expressed through you. And it's not about you trying to act like it. It's not you trying to, to pretend to be like it. It's not you saying, what would, what would the, the apple do? That's what I'm going to do is act like the apple. It's about saying, Lord Jesus, let your life be released in me. And unless that happens, what we're doing is creating generations and generations and generations and generations and generations of Christians who are spending their entire life trying to replicate Christ. We're not under the law. We figured out the law could not rescue us. The law could not get us to heaven. The law could not make us righteous. All the law could do is show us our sinfulness. All the law could do is reveal to us our spiritual condition of death. All the law could do is shut our mouth and silence us in our self-righteousness and prove to us that we were without hope and without God in the world. That was the purpose of the law. 
Now that we understand we're not under the law, though, my grave concern is what we've done is we've replaced the law with a new standard. The new standard we now have is the example of Jesus. So praise God, I'm not under the law anymore. I've been forgiven. The handwriting of ordinances where I had broken the law that was against me, which was contrary to me, Jesus took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross in his own body. He's removed it forever as a barrier between me and a holy God. He's reconciled me to the Father. And I'm so thankful Jesus has done all of that to deliver me from the law. And the law is no longer my hope of salvation. I'm saved because of what Jesus did. And now, praise God, I'm reconciled to God. I'm so thankful for that. Now, there's the way, here's the truth. Go live the life. And what is the life? Well, it's to be like Jesus. So my new law, my new law is be Christ-like. I set Jesus now as my new standard. Can I give you some bad news? By doing so, you have not gone from a impossibility to a lesser impossibility. You've gone from an impossibility to a greater impossibility. If you couldn't keep the law, what makes you think you're going to act like Jesus? <laughs> what? The law said you shall not commit adultery. I could go a long way before I committed adultery in my mind, in my heart, but Jesus didn't say that. He said if you look at a woman with lust, you committed adultery. The law said you shall not commit murder. I can go a long way without committing murder under the law. But Jesus said if you say in your heart, that man's a fool. You killed him in your heart. See, Jesus didn't lower the standard of the law. He raised the standard of the law because Jesus was not just the letter of the law. Jesus was the spirit of the law in full color, technicolor reality. He was everything beyond what we can comprehend. And now our new standard is going to be, we're going to be like him and ask what would Jesus do and then go try and do that? My Lord, get me back under the law. <laughs> Amen? I can hate you and call you everything name in the book in my head, but as long as I don't kill you, at least under the law, <laughs> I got hope. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Why would I try and replicate this when this is inside of me, waiting to be released through me? Why would I try and act like Jesus when Jesus himself is living inside me? Did you think that he died on the cross, came from heaven, you know, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, though he's in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, even to a, the point of death, even death on a cross, and wherefore the Father has given him a name above every name. He's highly exalted him and seated him right hand of his Father. Do you think he did all of that and then came into us by the power of his Spirit so that he could watch us act like him? I don't think so. I don't think that was the goal. He did all of that to qualify us. You know, when the Bible says, know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit, there's three words that could have been used in the Greek language. One would have meant the entire temple enclave. Another would have meant the inner court. But the word that's specifically used is the word that means the holy of holies. Do you not know that you now have become, you have become the holy of holies? 
What man could not enter into except one man, the high priest, only on one day, the day of atonement, only when he was perfectly ceremonially cleansed, walk in, put the blood on the, on the, the place of the Ark of the Covenant, withdraw from the mercy seat. One man, one day a year, for one moment, could go into the Holy of Holies. The Bible says now that's what you've become. So perfect was the blood of Christ. So perfectly satisfied was the Father with the work that Jesus did. So perfectly complete was the plan of the Father to come and bear upon the cross our own sin. That what, our, what his wrath and holiness demanded, his love and mercy supplied by he himself becoming the sacrifice that his own holiness required, bearing our sin, removing it forever as a barrier between us and God, reconciling us to the Father. All of that was to make us so holy by our faith and trust in the perfection of Christ's work, that we would now, by faith, become the very container of his own life. We would become the Holy of Holies now, which was always his intention. He wasn't interested in building tents and buildings. He was interested in putting his life in you. The tents and buildings were shadows of what his ultimate intention was, was that his life would be in you and that you would be one of a kind, never to be created again, never before, never again, through all eternity, one human person into which his life and his divine power could be placed, and then through you he could express the you version of the wonder of who he is. That's always been his plan. You know, if we go back into the garden, what's, what we find in the garden is that Man was created. Body, that's the Greek word soma. It's the word we get somatic from. Soul, it's the Greek word suke. It's the word we get... We get psychology and some of that from it. And then there's inside there was the spirit. That's the Greek word pneuma. It's the word we get pneumonia from or pneumatic wrench because it means wind or breath. So man was created body, soul, spirit, created in the image and after the likeness of God. But there was a thing out here called eternal life, zoe. It was God's intention that he would place his life inside our human spirit. That's why he made us with a spirit. Because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him spirit and truth. So he put, he meant for us to have a spirit into which his life would be placed and then his life would become the animating power, the dynamic, the force, the strength, the capacity, the ability that would cause every part, the, the suke, the soul, if you will, is made up of mind, it's made up of will, it's made up of, of emotion. The body out here is made up of our five senses and our appetites and our passions. But all of this makes sense only with the energizing, animating power of his life in us. And that's why after Adam and Eve ate of the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that they were cast out of the garden. And the reason why they were cast out of the garden is that they would not take of the tree of life and live forever. That was the reason why. They guarded, they put angels to guard the way to the tree of life because they were now in a fallen condition. They were alive 
And the, and the spiritual, the, the, the life never came in, the eternal life never came in. They had a spiritual life, they had a solical life, they had a physiological life, but they had not yet obtained eternal life. It had not yet been placed inside of them. They were born in a state of complete innocence, but they were not yet in a place where the purpose for which they were created was to eat of the tree of life. That's why God said, here's true trees in the garden. This is called the tree of life. This is called the tree of death. Oh, he didn't call it that. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which if you eat of it, it will lead you to death. But man chose death. And as a result, he forfeited life. And now his spirit was made spiritually dead, like a light bulb that had burned out. You know, if I have a beautiful lamp here and I plug it in and there's no, the light bulb is burned out, it doesn't matter how much electricity I'm putting to it. It's not going to receive it. It's not a problem with the power. It's a problem with the receiver. And see, man's spirit was made spiritually deaf. So here goes man out into the world. He's got a mind. He's got a will. He's got emotions. He's got a body full of lots of things. But what he does not have is he doesn't have the center from which he was meant to do everything and which was meant to be the power, the strength, the source, the resource, the capacity, the ability of everything in his life. And so man goes out into the world solically alive, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, mentally, emotionally, willfully, physiologically, but spiritually cut off from the life of God. Now here's where it gets really interesting. You know, when you look at this, God created an entire universe of living creatures. Entire universe of living creatures. And I'll tell you something about that entire universe of living creatures. That entire universe of living creatures, they all have a body and they all got a soul from a biblical perspective. They have a suke. They have a mind. A dog has a mind. Cat has a, a mind. Horse has a mind. They have a will. And they have emotions. And they have a body with appetites and passions. But they got something you don't have. I'm, I'm telling you the story of the human race. Listen to me just a minute. Right in here, they got a thing, not a spirit, but they've got a thing in there that is absolutely astounding. It's called instinct. And that instinct is the engine that drives their life. That instinct is what tells a monarch butterfly to go from Mexico to Canada and back to Mexico. That instinct is what tells an ant how to build an anthill and how to gather food for winter. How does the ant know to do that? That instinct is what causes a spider to build a spider web perfectly. Where is the school for spider web building? <laughs> this thing called instinct inside the animal kingdom is absolutely one of the most astounding things. It's incomprehensible. A salmon can be born in a river in Oregon. It can migrate down that river, freshwater, into the saltwater ocean spend its entire life in the ocean, then come back from salt water, back into the river, and fly up the stream, up, jump up waterfalls, and go back to the exact point where it was spawned. 
then it will release its eggs and die. How does it know how to do that? Instinct. Every creature on planet Earth, every single one that God has made from this tiniest, even from a single cell in a human body, who teaches a cell what to do with a protein? Where do they go to school to learn how to do what they do? Every creature in all of the universe has on the inside of them a thing called instinct. And that instinct does three things. It tells them what to do. It tells them how to do it. And most importantly, it becomes the actual power to do it. Within that spider is innate within that instinct the knowledge of what to do to build a spider web, the knowledge of how to do it, didn't ever have to learn it, but the instinct actually is the driving force that causes it to do it. But you see, God didn't put this inside of man. Why didn't he put an instinct in us? He didn't put an instinct in us because his intention was that we would be created in his image and after his likeness with a human spirit into which his life would come and his life would be what tells us what to do, what tells, tells us how to do it, and is the actual power and animating force and dynamic that enables us to do it. That's why Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 says this, I'm going to take the old stony heart, the one that died here, I'm going to take this old stony heart out of you. I'm going to remove it. Now, after I've removed this old stony heart, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. And then I'm going to place my spirit within you. And then I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and to keep my ordinances. Maybe that's why when Jesus said, you must be born again to Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, well, how's that going to happen? Am I going back in my mother's womb, going to start over again? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the, of the, of the law, to the, you're a teacher to the, to the nation of Israel, and you don't know this? You don't understand this? All the way back in Ezekiel, I explained this to you. There's a problem in the heart of man He's spiritually dead. He's living his whole life with mind, will, and emotions. But the, why is the human race so screwed up? Why is it so messed up? Can you imagine a spider that was full of silk but didn't have any instinct and didn't know what to do with it? Didn't know why it was there? Can you imagine a salmon full of, full of eggs but didn't know why they were there, didn't know how to get up the river, didn't know where it had come from or where it was going? Can you imagine the chaos, the absolute chaos of the animal kingdom if it didn't have instinct? Well, then I just described to you the human race without the Spirit of God in them. They don't even know what they are. Their entire identity is confused. They have no capacity. No They're trying to find purpose out of their intellect, their will, their emotions, their physiology, their passions, and their appetites devoid of the very purpose for which they were created. What an honor that God made us without instinct to be the containers of his life so that his spirit would become our instinct and his spirit would tell us what to do how to do it, and then his spirit would actually be the dynamic and power to do it. 
He wouldn't be asking us to manufacture it for him, but he would do it through us as we yielded to him. You see, this is exactly the condition of the human race. This is why the human race is so confused. Because we, the, as human beings, we make no sense without spiritual life and most importantly without the power and dynamic of that life which is Christ's own life in us. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, Jesus did not come to the earth only to reveal God to man. That was one of his things. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus did not come, listen to me just a second, he did not come just to reveal man, I mean God to man. He came to reveal man to men. What is a man supposed to look like? A man is supposed to look like somebody who is spiritually alive, somebody in whom God's own life is and who is now mind, will, emotion, passion, appetite surrendered to that spiritual instinct and power to operate through them. And that's exactly how Jesus lived his entire life. You know, the Bible says Jesus made himself of no reputation. What is a reputation? A reputation is something you get when you do something. Jesus said he made himself of no reputation. As a matter of fact, Jesus reiterated constantly throughout his life, the words that I speak are not my own. They're the words the Father gives me. The deeds that I do, they're not my own. They're the works the Father is doing through me. I do nothing of myself. I can do nothing of myself, Jesus said. But what I see the Father doing. Jesus constantly reiterated that he was not here to live his life for the Father. He was here to let the Father live his life through Jesus. He voluntarily laid down the prerogatives of his divinity to allow the Father and the Spirit of the Lord to operate through him. He did not live as a man trying to act good for God. He lived as a man surrendered to the life of the Father within him. And that's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, the Father, you've seen the Father. Well, works that I do are the works the Father is doing through me. Jesus, in essence, was the branch to the vine of the Father. The Father was the source. Jesus was where the fruit of the source showed up. What Jesus was doing was not trying to replicate the life of the Father. He was letting the Father's life be expressed through him. In the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's one unity. And it was as Christ, in man, as man on earth, was allowing the Father's life to be expressed through him. This is exactly what Jesus wants to do for us. He wants to say to us, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm the vine now. You're the branch. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll bear fruit. I'll cut you back so there'll be more of me. Then I'll cut more of you back so there'll be more of me. And eventually there'll be so much of me that you'll be bearing much fruit. And in this my Father will be glorified. And then he says these words in John 15 verse 5, Apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me, my spirit, my eternal life in you, you can do nothing. The Christian life is not about what I'm going to do for the Lord. The Christian life is about what Christ can do and will do and yearns to do and has always planned to do through me as I learn how to submit all of this that he created to become the container of his life to the power of his life and learn how to get out of his way and let him begin to find expression through me. By the way, I want you to see just a couple of things in Scripture. I'm talking so fast because if I, if I go through and just lay out every kind of scripture to you, then it just takes a long time. 
Just look with me at Colossians chapter 1 real quick. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 27, it says, For to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man, and always in that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end, Paul says, I labor. How does he labor? Look at verse 29, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. What does Paul say? He says there's a mystery. It's been hidden before the foundation of the earth. Now it's been revealed. What is the mystery? The mystery is Christ has now come and taken up residence inside of you. He took the old stony heart out. He removed it. You, you were given a brand new spirit, a brand new heart. Now he's placed his life within you, his spirit in you, so that he can now become the dynamic, the animating power, the strength, the capacity to tell you what to do, how to do it, and actually give you the power to do what you can't do for him, but he can do through you. And he says, because of this, it's him we preach. It's him we preach. It's him we preach. I tell you, for years, I've sat in sermons and listened to people preach you. This is what you need to do. This is what you've got to do. This is what you're not doing right. This is what you've got to do better. This is what you need to do next year that you didn't do last year. We're preaching ourselves, preaching ourselves, preaching ourselves. But Paul said, I don't preach myself. I'm preaching him. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, in him, not in me. I'm not preaching me. I'm not seeking me. I have no confidence in my flesh's ability to replicate Jesus. My confidence is in Christ's capacity to reproduce his life through me as I learn how to host the presence of his life and to allow my life to become the container of his life. You know, it's interesting when Moses was in the Old Testament, he walked past and he saw a burning bush. And the Bible says he saw it and he was intrigued by it. I don't think he was intrigued by it because it was a bush that was burning. Because I imagine in the desert with thunderstorms and heat that this, there were bushes that burnt from time to time. What intrigued him is that the bush was burning but it was not being consumed. And so he went closer to it. When he got closer to it, God spoke out of the bush. And here's what God was saying, not in words, but he was saying in an illustration of revelation is that God did not need the bush to fuel his fire. The bush was not fueling the flame that was in it. The bush was not the source of the flame. All the bush was doing was hosting the flame it was not contributing to the flame. It wasn't making the flame burn. The flame was not burning on the fuel of the bush. The flame just happened to be in the bush. But you see, we think that we are going to fuel the flame and he doesn't need us to fuel the flame. In fact, when we start trying to fuel the flame, we actually start to hinder the expression of his life. We don't assist it. We actually hinder it. When the Spirit of the Lord takes up residence inside of me, 
I want you to note that the scripture says something fascinating. It says that the spirit of man, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts. You know, a lamp is where you put a light, but a lamp is not a light itself. And a lamp doesn't really have any purpose unless there's a light in it. But the light and the lamp are not one and the same. The lamp is the place where the light is placed. And God has placed the lamp of his life into the spirit of man, into the lamp that he created to contain his life. But the lamp is not there to fuel the flame. It's there to host it, to hold it, and then to give it expression to allow it to shine as brightly as it possibly can. That's the purpose of the lamp, is to get out of the light's way and allow it to find full expression. Well, see, when we allow the Spirit of the Lord to come into our life, something dramatic and dynamic takes place that we never had before. We are not just people that have been forgiven and reconciled to God and given a new start and told, okay, I took care of all the mess you made. I've taken care of it for all eternity. You're forgiven forever. You get to go to heaven when you die. Now I've wiped the slate clean. Would you just please go and do your very best and try and do better this time, acting like me? I mean, after all, do you know how much work I went into putting this book together so that you could do this stuff? Okay? No, what Jesus did is he did this. All of this was simply the required prerequisite to do this. That's the only reason why he did that, was to do this. That's why the Bible says we are reconciled by his death so we could be saved by his life. Not by his death, by his life in us. That's what saves us, sozo. That's what makes us whole in every portion of our lives is the power of his life constantly growing within us but you see because we are so for so long we've been living out of our mind and out of our will and out of our emotions and out of our passions in the physical and out of our appetites we've been living that way for so long that what we do is we get saved and we say okay I'm going to put my mind and my will and my emotions and my passions and my appetites to work for Jesus And be honest with you, we're often taught to do that. That's why you see people coming over and over again to the altar to rededicate their life to the Lord. Well, let me tell you what your life is. Your life is your mind, your will, your emotions, your passions, your appetites, absent his life. That's your life. And you're going to live that for him? Why would you do that? When he has placed his very own life inside of you. Why would you want to live your life out of this like an animal without an instinct trying to figure out what's my purpose? What am I going to do for Jesus? What am I going to do? I'm going to do something great because Bill did something pretty good and if I do something better than that, then I know I'd really be an expression and really glorify God and really honor him because I'm going to do this big stuff for God. And we we get into this mess of confusion because that's what you do. If, If God died for me and Christ bore my sin and removed all that and now I've got to live my life for him, I've got I to figure out the very best way I get so my mind starts cogitating 
and I start wrestling with my will. I know I'm supposed to act this way and I'm acting that way and I need to really get my will focused. My emotions are up and down and up and down and up and down and my passion comes in there. My appetites come in there and I get all confused and get under condemnation, get under guilt, get back into my mind, try to figure out what I need to will for. And I'm always in this mess outside here in the flesh. That's why Paul the Apostle said the flesh profits nothing. Jesus said the words that I speak to you are spirit and they're life. I'm not talking to your flesh. I'm talking to your spirit. The words I'm speaking to are spirit and their life, their spirit and their life, their spirit and their life. He says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So the Lord is trying to speak into our spirit. He's trying to reveal to us. You know, the Bible says Jesus himself speaking said, you search the scriptures because you think by them you'll find eternal life. But they are those which speak of me. But you won't come to me that you might have life. You're searching this, thinking this is going to be the source of eternal life. But he says, this is here to testify of me and so that you'll come to me so that then you'll find life. This life, this Zoe, the life that God himself has. So here is man. Now he's born again. The life of the Lord has taken up residence inside of him. But his mind did not get born again. His will did not get born again. His emotions did not get born again. His appetites did not get born again. And his passions did not get born again. What got born again was his spirit. Now, I'll tell you something about this outer man. The outer man cannot be managed or harnessed by you to serve God. It's not about your effort. It's no different than if you're trying to reproduce this apple by your effort without any help from the apple. Listen to me. Try and reproduce this apple without the apple's help. You can't do it. It's not about how much effort you put into it. It's not about how much energy you do to try. I'm not going to replicate it anymore, Lord. I'm still trying to copy it. I'm going to reproduce your life in me by managing my mind, my will, my emotions, my passions, my appetites in order to produce, to produce again your life through me. That's what I'm going to do, Lord. You can't. You can't do it for him. All you can do is figure out if this is the truth, Lord, if this is truly who I am now, the one creature on planet earth who was not born with instinct but was made with a spirit into which your life would come and become the knowledge of what to do, how to do it, and the very power to do it. If that's what it is, then Lord, whatever I thought I knew about this Christian life, help me to recalibrate it. By the way, you say you're going to live your life for Jesus? Well, let me give you a couple of discouraging thoughts about that. Okay? <laughs> Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. And my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. By the way, how different are they? As high as the heavens are above the earth. Pause and calmly think of that. Selah. Seriously. How high are the heavens above the earth? I don't believe God's a God of hyperbole. As high as the heavens are above the earth are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. So what's the chance if I'm going to live my life for Jesus? I'm going to think like he thinks or do things the way he does things.
You know, years ago I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, let me start from the end and go back to the beginning. A few years ago, the embassy in Israel was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It was a really remarkable event in history and in time. I was there. There were 300 people there. I was one of them. World heads of state, famous people. My daughter and I were sitting there. And I'm sitting there, and the number one emotion I had as I'm sitting there is, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I here? Let me tell you why I was there. I was there because about 20 years earlier, the Lord told me one day in prayer to start an early morning service, a 7 a.m. service or 8 a.m. service. I don't remember what it was. And so I said, okay, Lord, I don't know if anybody will come, 8 o'clock in the morning. But I was, I was, I've, I've begun to learn that God's ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And I've learned that the biggest problem Mike Atkins has is this big question, why? I want to know why. You know why I want to know why? Because I want to know if I agree with the why. <laughs> because, you know, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I get to decide what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. Because I'm independent. So I keep wanting to ask the question why, but I've, I've learned I don't care about why anymore. God owes me no explanations. I don't need any explanations about why I'm asked to do something. A spider never says, okay, now why is it you want me to build this there? <laughs> An ant never says, it's the middle of summer. Why am I working all this beautiful summer to gather food for winter? I don't even know what winter is. Why? Why would I do that? because they have the instinct that the creator placed within them. But our instinct was meant to be his spirit. So I said, okay, Lord, I'll start this. So eight o'clock service. For the first year, there were more people coming to serve that service than were coming to attend it. Between our children's workers, our ushers, our worship team, our, you know, the, the people, the greeters at the door, we'd have 10, 12, 15 people there. We'd have like five people showing up for this service. And I would go to the Lord, Lord, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? He said, just, just do it. Every time, just peace. Just let my peace rule in your heart. And so I just kept doing it. Another six months, another year went by. Maybe we grew to like 20 people. Then we grew to around 30. And then eventually we got a pretty good solid maybe 35 people coming. This is in a town of, you know, 6,000 people. We had, a, we had a pretty good sized church there. So we're, we're going through this motions. And one day I, I walk into the service and I look out there and I see a guy who I recognize some of you would know his name. It doesn't matter. But I saw him and I recognized him and I thought, oh, that's interesting, he's here. Afterward, he came up to me and he said, I got to tell you, your message absolutely struck the very core of my heart. He says, any chance we could get together and have a cup of coffee? He said, I'm leaving right now because I had to go catch, I have to catch a flight, but I'm going to be back in a few days. And he said, and I was looking for a church to go to and this is the only church that had an early morning service. I said, okay, well, let's go. Well, long story short, from that conversation began a 20-year friendship that 20-year friendship eventually led me to become involved in the Cory Ten Boom Museum in Harlem, Holland, where I was on the board of directors for 20 years. 
Then a, a new museum was started in Jerusalem and I became the creative director of that museum which is now seen by all of the IDF soldiers as they come into, uh, into Israel and the children who go through school, they come by the droves and go through this museum called the Friends of Zion Museum in Jerusalem. It's the most high-tech museum in the entire state of Israel and I was the creative director for it. And because of that, I was invited to the, to the embassy dedication and I sat there thinking, how did I get here? How I got there was by letting God tell me what to do, how to do it, and then doing it through me and me leaving the why to him. You see, if I'm going to live my life for Christ, that's all on me. God's not going to help me do that. And if I'm being told this is what you're supposed to do. I have a daughter who wore a bracelet called What Would Jesus Do? WWJD for I don't know how many years. She wore it till it was frazzled and she'd re-knit it together and sew it together. She wore it forever. WWG, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What, would Je what difference does it make what would Jesus would do? You can't do it. <laughs> what? You, so... What you need to do is not say, what would Jesus do? You need to say, Jesus, what do you want to do through me today? Not what can I do for you, what can you do through me? I have a friend that just recently, I just read yesterday, he, he pulled up, he was driving down the road, he looked at a gas station, he saw a car parked at the gas station, and the Holy Spirit said, stop, go in there and pay for that gal's gas. So he pulled into the gas station. He went up and very gently tapped on the window. She looked up a little frightened. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I just got to ask you. I said, I feel like God just told me. I said, pull over here, stop, and fill your car up with gas. She burst into tears. She said, I'm sitting here. My credit card has been declined. I have no gas. I coasted into this gas station. He looked at her back window, and it said Uber and Lyft. That was the only way she knew how to make a living. She said, I have no money, I have no gas. And he looked at her and said, you know who knew that? God, not me. I didn't know that. Can I tell you, do you think that that matters? Is that an act of significance? You see, in the kingdom of God, significance is not determined by the size of what I do. In the kingdom of God, significance is determined by the source of who's doing it. If I build a massive kingdom of extraordinary power, of world renown, but the person who did it was me, it doesn't matter because in God's eyes, it equals nothing. doesn't mean I can't do anything apart from him. We all know we can do stuff apart from him. What it means is what we do apart from him amounts to nothing. It's not the size, it's the source. If I do something, allow him to do something through me that is the tiniest, most insignificant act that I could ever imagine, if it's him who both prompted it and empowered it, it will, it will reverberate after the stars and the universe have disappeared. It will still be reverberating in significance. I have to tell you, saints, the church, not you guys, I'm just being honest with you, you guys are unique in this sense. You've got leaders that have lived a deeper life. 
But I'm telling you, I move in the body of Christ largely, and we have entirely adopted the same value system to define significance as the world does. No different. Bigger is always better. More expensive is always a sign that you're doing something more important. Everything revolves in the world around that idea. Because man without God can only find significance by doing something that makes him an intellectual giant, willful, touches his emotions, meets his passions, fulfills his appetites. He's always trying to find meaning and purpose. And I am so heartbroken. You know, I don't look at the world with judgment. These wicked, terrible, horrible people, how can they possibly, you know, in the light of a holy God, how can they possibly live the way? I don't look at it that way at all. I say, oh, God, bless. Do something, Lord. Somehow let them hear not the message that we've been preaching, which is the problem is you didn't try hard enough. Have you ever read the Ten Commandments? Don't you know what's right and wrong? Can I tell you the world knows what's right and wrong just as well as you do? They just, they just are more honest about it. They found out they couldn't do it, and they stopped trying to fake it. They just said, this can't be true because I can't do it. And the church told them, well, there you have it, a rebel. Because they didn't try hard enough, and they didn't work hard enough, and study hard enough to do what they needed to do to get what they needed to get to be the person that God intended them to be. But not us. You see, what we need to be saying to them is, can I tell you the honest truth? We've been telling you something that's not true. I'm going to close with this because I believe that the mind can only absorb what the bottom can endure. (laughs) I mentioned this this morning, but this is such a critical revelation. You know, I used to hear people preach, you know, you are in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And I'd turn around here and preach, Christ is in you, Christ is in you, Christ is in you, Christ is in you. Now, my brain is just limited enough that I was going, okay, how exactly does that work? <laughs> I'm in Jesus, and Jesus is in me. And I, I would, I'd wrestle with it. I'd, okay, help me understand that. I could see clearly the scriptures where Jesus said, you know, Christ in you is the hope of glory. I could see those things, okay, Christ is in me, but then I'd see, you know, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, now I'm in him. Now he's in me, I'm in him. How does this work? And, you know, I, I would hear people preach and they would, they would show me. Here's in the scripture, it says Christ is in you. Okay, I got that. Now, and it also says here in the scripture that you're in Christ. Yeah, I see that. Okay, but how does that actually work? I could not get anybody to explain it to me. And one day I was reading the scripture and the Lord just made it so clear to me. You know, if this arm, if you can just imagine for a minute, this arm is the vine, it's a vine, and I'm going to call this vine the vine of Adam. For me, at a certain point in my life, I was born of the vine of Adam. Here I came. Okay? And if you were to chase my lineage back to my father, my father's back to my grandfather, my grandfather back to my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, all the way back, eventually you'd get back to Adam. So I was born of the vine of Adam. The problem is I was born in a spiritually dead condition. Because when Adam fell and died spiritually, his spiritual death was passed to every human being who was born after that. And so I was born mentally alive, emotionally alive, volitionally alive, physiologically alive, all these but I was born spiritually dead because I was born of the vine of Adam and I inherited that condition. 
And so here I came out of the vine of Adam. And what I discovered is that branches do not really produce fruit. Branches bear fruit. Vines produce it. So the fruit that started showing up in my life showed up on me, but it was coming from something deeper. It was coming from that lineage. And so my life started producing fruit, started bearing fruit. And the fruit that was coming in my life was the fruit of that rebellious nature. Now, that doesn't mean there was nothing good in my life or no, nothing was right, but it was all coming out of that death of my flesh. And by the way, with the absence of man's spirit and the absence of instinct like the animal kingdom had, man became the playground of the adversary. So the adversary could move in and out of this person's life because there was a hollowness there. Could influence, could control, could manipulate. And man working in his mind, well, the enemy can work in your mind. Man working in his will, the enemy can work in your will. And your emotions, the enemy can play on your emotions. The emotions and the mind are what control the will. And so he, all this is, so here I am producing all this, manifesting all of this fruit. And here I am in this vine. Well, for years, what I thought it meant to be a Christian is Jesus died for me, and now what he's going to do is he's going to help me to live my life for him. So he's somehow going to come over here and assist me. He's going to empower me. Maybe he's even going to come over here into me somehow. You know, the Bible says that, and he's going to somehow get in here and sort of do something to make a difference in this. But you know what I came to realize is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 11 is it says, we, though we were a wild olive shoot against our nature, we were grafted in to a cultivated olive branch. And we now share in the life-nourishing sap of this vine. And if the root is holy, then the branch is holy. You see, the way that Jesus came into me is by grafting me into him. And then his life comes into me because I'm now in him. And by the result of that grafting, the longer I abide in him, he begins to cut something away and he starts to put something new. And then he cuts something away and then something new begins to come. And then he cuts more of me away, and then he places more of himself there. And eventually, over time, though the branch is completely unchanged, by virtue of its union with the life of the vine, the life, the life nourishing sap of that vine begins to go up into that branch and begins to change the character of the branch. Because the branch does not produce the fruit, it bears the fruit of the vine. So now that I'm grafted into Christ, what is my goal? I'm there to abide in him and let his life and his word abide in me. And when I do, he comes and he trims me back and then he releases more of his life. I had a friend that used to have a beautiful rose garden just down the street from us. They were magnificent roses in his house. Every year went from the most beautiful house on the block to the ugliest because every year he would cut all of the rose bushes back till they were just bare bones, looked like skeletons. And every year his roses would double in the next year. 
You see, the only way he can get more of him in is to get more of you out. But the problem is, what if I'm over here saying, well, Lord, let me help you. I want to live my life for you, Jesus. I want to... He's like, would you please sit down and shut up and quit it? You are in my way. If you'll just abide in me and stop trying to live your life for me and let me live my life through you, the things, everything I promised you I've promised to do in you, through you. You know, there's a verse of scripture. Are you okay for me to just talk one minute longer? I, it's, I, I, okay, I, I'm just, I, I just, I, I get to talking so long because I, I want you to look at, if you have your Bible, just look at these verses real quick. I want you to see how scriptural what I'm talking to you about is. Look at Philippians 2.13. We're just gonna hit these really quick. If you don't have a thumb that you can wet or a click that you can click, just listen. Philippians 2, let's look at, at verse 12. We hear, we hear this verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, only how, now much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, man. Got to live my life for Jesus, right? Oh, got to read on. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Apparently for me to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling means to be scared of getting in his way. <laughs> because what is my salvation? The Lord is my light and my salvation. If I've been reconciled by his death, we'll be saved by what? His life. So what is my salvation? It's him. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I haven't fallen short of the standard of God. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? We beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God. And Jesus has now taken residence inside of us by the power of his life. It's him who's working in us, both to will. He gives the will to do it, and he does it, the will and to do according to his good pleasure. I'm not finished. Look at Hebrews 13. Look at Hebrews 13. Turn right. Turn quick. Hebrews 13. <laughs> Look what it says here in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may he make you complete in every good work to do his will. Look what he says. Working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. You know who glory goes to? Glory goes to the one who does the work. If I did the work, I get the glory. Why would the glory go to Jesus? Because he's doing the work. He's not only there to tell me what to do, how to do it, why, where to do it. He's there to do it if I'll get out of his way and let him do it. I'm going to get to it. I know the question's in your mind. I want you to see another one. Look at Colossians 1.20. Well, we read that. Well, let's look. Colossians 1, let's look at Romans 15. Romans 15. 
I'll tell you, Pastor, this one slays me every time I read it. I almost have to take a breath before I read it. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 17, if you think I'm making this up. Romans 15, verse 17. Paul the Apostle, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. Look what he says in verse 18. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. In word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about to Lycrium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul the Apostle said, I won't even open my mouth to talk about anything that Jesus did not do through me. If he didn't do it through me, it's not worth me talking about. If he did it through me, just know this. It didn't come from me. It came through me. He was the one who did the work, not me. The more you get to understand this, the more you start to live out of it, the more astounded you'll be at what Christ can do through you that you could have never, ever in a million years done for him. And you'll find out how effective he is in five minutes, more effective than you'd be in 50 years of trying to live for him. Look what it says in Galatians 4.19. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Galatians 4.19. Look at Galatians 4.19. My little children. This is, this is me right now, <laughs> i got to tell you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. He could see the Galatians were falling back into works. Do you know what the opposite of faith is theologically? It's not fear. The opposite of faith theologically is works. You're either going to get to heaven by works or by faith. Fear is not the opposite theologically. Fear is not the opposite of faith. Works are the opposite of faith. If I'm working, it means I'm not living by faith in him. If I'm living by faith in him, Hebrews chapter 4, when you enter into his rest, you cease from your own labors. When you enter into the rest of his life in you, you stop working for him and you start learning how to cooperate with allowing him to work through you. And that's when you start living by faith. Nobody here believes that they, that they got forgiven and reconciled to God on the basis of their works. Nobody here is going to get to heaven and say, you know, Lord, I went to church, I paid my tithes and offerings, I sang in the choir, I wore the, I wore the right clothes, I, you know, I only smoked dope on the weekends, and I, you know, and I always shared with my friends, and, you know, uh, you know, and so I'm just saying when I get to heaven, you know, I mean, my good works, you got to give me, you know, I did better than I did my bad works, so I get to go to heaven. We all know that's not going to happen, right? So what do we do? We put our faith, not in our works, we put our faith in his work for us on the cross, right? So congratulations, you got the first half of grace. But there's a whole other half. The second half of grace is not what he did for you that you could not do for yourself. The second half of grace is why he did it. So that he could do through you what you can't do by yourself. And if you're going to accept 
what he did on the cross by faith and not by works, the only way you're going to see the second half of grace in your life is to do it by faith in what he can do through you and not by faith in what you can do for him. It's the exact same issue. Christ formed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to end with this tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want your Bible to become new to you again. This is, this is not a minor theme. This is not a subplot. From Genesis to Revelation, this is all that God ever intended to do, is to make a creature in his image after his likeness into which he could place his spirit and then he could become the animating power and dynamic to tell us what to do, how to do it, and then become the power of doing it. And we would trust him so much and have such faith in him, we wouldn't ask anymore why. We'd just say, how can I get in the flow of that? How can I host your presence, Lord? How can I get your flame in my bush? You don't need me to fuel it. You just need me to host it and watch what you do as a light to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says in verse 7, but we have this treasure. We have this treasure right here, okay? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This treasure has been placed in a jar of clay so that the excellence of the power that's manifested through us would be recognized as being from God and not from us. We carry in our body the death of Jesus that the life of Jesus may be manifested. What does that mean? You know what it means? It means that when Jesus came to the earth, he made himself of no reputation. It means that Jesus did nothing except what he saw the Father doing. He said nothing except what he heard the Father saying. The words that he spoke were the words the Father gave him. The, the deeds that he did were the deeds that he saw the Father doing through him. His entire life was one of relinquishing control, ceasing to assist. He didn't go up and get the disciples and say, hey guys, you know last night we had this great revival going on in the village down there and I'm thinking if we get together a marketing plan here that I think we could probably, we could double this audience crowd and you know if we could get a few contributors to involve ourselves with this I think we could take this campaign to the next level and what I want us to do is get together and kind of strategize and think through how could we go somewhere with this no Jesus went up on the mountain to pray and the disciples had to come find him and when they found him they said Jesus the people are down here man they're ready we got the the worship teams already going you know we've been we've been kind of stretching we got announcements and everything going on but we we need the man you got to show up we built the altar we need the fire and Jesus said no we're not going back down there we're going to this next village why because Jesus was demonstrating to us what a man is like who has the instinct of the spirit 
is not living by intellect, not living by emotion, not living by his own will, his own passion, his own appetites. He's living by the Spirit. And the father, after he'd prayed all night, said, go to the next village. Good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to the one. Wait a minute, 99, that's a lot of tithers, Lord. You sure you want me to leave 99 and go to one? I mean, wouldn't it be better just to go ahead and leave that one, you know, God bless them, and just kind of hang here with the 99? See, we don't think like God thinks. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus was here for 30 years, and we don't even know what he did, except he was a carpenter. 30 years of 33. We have no idea what he was doing, except for at 12 years of age on a couple of days. That's it. We have no other knowledge of what he did. In three years, what did he do? Would you say he made an impact on the world? You know the entire life of Christ? Look at it. Look at it right here. I'm sorry I can't stop talking. <laughs> Look at it. I'm going to show you this just real quick. Here we go. This is the entire life of Jesus right there that we have recorded. Not very big, is it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's it. How would you like that to be the size of your biography? I'm going to write an autobiography. It's going to be 25 pages long or something. We're, man, do you, do you think we're going to do more with our life than he did with his? Why? Why was he so powerfully impacting? Because he did not live his life for the Father. He let the Father live his life through him. To model to us, this is what you're supposed to be like. You weren't placed here to come up with great strategies and plans. You were placed here to listen to the instincts of the Spirit. Tell your mind to be quiet, be still, and know that I'm God. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And be conformed no longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. How do I transform my mind? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who made himself of no reputation but became obedient. He, he didn't try and do anything except what he heard the Father telling him to do. What does that mean? It means you've got to become conversant with the Spirit. You've got to learn that the, your brain is not where God puts his light. He puts it in your spirit. There are things that you can know in your spirit that your brain doesn't understand. I call this my knower. This is my thinker. Then I got a feeler. Then I got a chooser. And then I got a doer. This is my doer here, okay? There are things God can reveal to me in my knower that my brain doesn't understand yet. Why? If I wait to know why, instead of listening to what, then I, I start to begin to try and help the Lord. Well, you know, Lord, okay, I see that, but what would you think about us doing it this way? Because don't you think this would make a whole lot more sense? And, and we, could, you know, we could be a lot more effective. And let me get a couple of other minds together thinking with us, with us about this, Lord. Let's get a committee together. And then I'm sure we can improve on your plan. Okay. Let's just be still before the Lord for a moment. I know, I, I can tell you, literally, I could sit here for 10 days and not stop talking and just still be touching surface.
But I, I hope that the Spirit of God is speaking deeper than your head. I hope you're hearing this not with your head. I hope you're hearing this with your spirit. Because I tell you, once you've, once you've just taken a small bite of this, the reproduction of his life in you, the wax fruit of your ways, you'll just, you just won't want to do that anymore. I just don't want to do that anymore. Lord, please deliver me from my own ways. Jesus, I'm just here before you, so thankful for who you are. I had no idea, Lord. I had no idea what an incredible, extraordinary God you were. For so long, I thought that my purpose was to do my very best, to live in gratitude for getting a new chance to start over and try better. Lord, how, how blind I was not to see that from the very beginning of time I was an instrument created for the breath of your life to blow through and play a song that's never been sung before through an instrument that will never be recreated so that I would let my light so shine before men that people would see the works and glorify my Father who is in heaven. And what is my light? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Lord, let my light shine in such a way that what happens is your life finds expression through me, and then all the glory goes to you because people will know that didn't come from him. Jesus in this still moment, I just pray especially for the people that are in this room striving, struggling so hard, so disappointed in themselves. Even some who have just quit really trying, they've just kind of come up with a pretty good replication and they're just trying to keep it polished and keep it looking okay until they get to heaven because they didn't know reproduction was your business. Lord, can you take us to a place where only you can really communicate? Take us beyond our head to our spirit man. Awaken our hearts to understand you. Help us to see your word with fresh eyes. Help us to see it not as a chain around our neck, that constantly mirrors back to us our shortcomings and failures. Help us to see it, Lord, as a gift, as an inheritance that explains to us the glory of what your life can be in us if we learn how to let you do through us what we can't do for you. I'm trusting you, Lord, and I'm thankful for what you've done tonight and that your word won't return void, but will accomplish the purpose to which it's sent. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.